In 2002, scholar Joshua Moravchik wrote a history of socialism, which he thought would serve as the epitaph for an experiment that had failed over and over in country after country in Europe, Latin America, Asia, and Africa. But socialism has now risen from the grave, including in the United States. Dr. Moravchik talks with me about where this Walking Dead ideology may be heading and who its victims are likely to be. I'm Cliff May, and you're listening to Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Joshua Moravchik, I think we need to start with, uh, with the personal before we get into the political and the ideological. Um, you wrote a marvelous book on socialism, Heaven on Earth. You wrote it in 2002, but this year you added a fairly long and really fascinating epilogue. Um, and I, I, I really recommend it to everybody. And you write, But in the prologue of that book, you write the following, Socialism is the faith in which I was raised. Your parents were socialists. You were a socialist. But you became a heretic and an apostate. You want to take us through that transition? I'd be glad to. Now, my parents had my grandparents, in fact. I'm happy to say that my parents were not, were never communists. I have some dear friends who were at one point communists, uh, and uh, I don't uh, hold it against them. To be a communist meant to really embrace something pretty horrible, and my parents never did that. But they were absolutely devoted to democratic socialism. And it was really, aside from family, the most important thing in their lives. When I say it was faith, it's because although we're Jewish, they were absolute atheists. Their sense of what would uh, make a better world had nothing to do, for many people, it has something to do with, with God or one's relationship to God. But for them, it was purely a about socialism. That was, that's what they were uh, yearning for. You know, this is a bit of a digression, but, but it, I'm curious to have your thoughts on this. A, a lot of, there were quite a few Jews, not least in, the, in, in Russia and the Soviet Union, uh, who were socialists, who were communists, Mensheviks, Bolsheviks. It's always struck me that part of the reason is this idea of a better world, and they, and, and they're, you know, before socialism was tested, as it was, in many incarnations, which we'll discuss, I think it was not illogical to believe this was a better way to organize society. But I also wonder if a lot of Jews didn't think this is also the way out of anti-Semitism. We're all united in the proletariat. We're all united to build this better society. It won't matter anymore if we're Jews or if we're Christians, if we're or 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 our identity won't play such a role. And I use the word identity purposefully, and we'll hopefully come back to that too. Do you think I'm right on in this theory? 
I, I think that certainly was one of the factors, but I uh, scratch my head over this a lot because Jews had a, a tremendously big role in the in the history of socialism in, in Russia and Germany and, and every place else, maybe not in China, and I suppose not in Egypt. Uh, well, Egypt, I, I take that back because there were a lot of Jewish Egyptians who were active in the... So certainly what you're saying has... has it was a, a, a part of that. Uh, but um, I think in some in some parts of the world, Jews also kind of led the way in secularization. I think the people of all Jews, Christians, others who turned away from religious faith often thought of themselves as very scientific-minded and uh, against superstition. But th th they often then embraced this idea that that the world was going to some whole new society that they could help create. And it was pretty uh, pretty unscientific. Uh, well, uh, but you know what? That Take us through that a bit because it became more scientific, obviously, with Marx, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. You write that, uh, so that, that, that the French Revolution is, I think you say, the manger in which socialism was born. Um, and it started out very much uh, as a matter of idealism, kind of building on the American Revolution. But... Um, some would say, Edmund Burke would say, taking it too far or taking it in the wrong direction. Thomas Jefferson wasn't quite so clear-eyed on that. Take it from there. The, the French Revolution did inspire people to think that the, the world could be made anew through violence, or at least through political action. And, you know, and, and the French did one interesting change from the American, which was when they uh, made equality one of the goals of government, freedom, equality, and brotherhood. In the American context, our founders said all men are created equal. It was kind of a statement that implied kind of equal dignity of humans. It didn't imply that governments had somehow set out to equalize people. And I think the French took that turn, and it turned out to be uh, one that I think was ultimately harmful. The next stage after the, it was like 1820s, 1830s, and we got these people who were later called by Marx the, the utopians, what French and British thinkers, uh, visionaries, writers, who envisioned a kind of social society, but they weren't interested in taking power or in staging a revolution. They had a really much better idea, which is, hey, we've got this great idea. We're going to demonstrate its validity. We're going to create little socialist communities, and even the people who are skeptical will see that this is a much better way to organize society. And they did. They went and created, most of them were in the United States, even though these dreamers were Europeans, because in the United States it was easy to get land and there weren't strict social mores as, as much as there were in Europe, so it was easier to do something offbeat. There were some 40 to 50 of these communities that were created, and they had a median lifespan of two years. That <laughs> they fell apart real fast. So they were kind of quite, so you had the French Revolution, the word socialist wasn't that we used at that point, but there was sort of a social, that's as you say, that with the socialist impulses, then you had these European thinkers and these communities, kind of cooperative communities where they thought they could create a model of socialism. And then the word was used at that point, right? Mm -hmm coined the term yeah. in the 1820s and 1830s. And they were taken very seriously. The, the perhaps most important was Robert Owen of, of England. When he came to the United States, he announced that he was coming to found one of these you know, communities. <laughs> he had an architect create a scale model of his 
imagined perfect socialist community, and it was put on display at the White House for weeks or months upon his uh, arrival. And there was a joint session of Congress held so he could present his ideas. And so Owen founded this community called New Harmony. It's in it Ohio. was in Indiana. Indiana, Indiana I'm Indiana, sorry. Okay. Which was you know the West yeah, at, yeah, at, yeah, at yeah, that yeah. moment. Collapsed in disharmony almost immediately. Happily, there's a, a collection of letters that are still available of people who were there. And uh, one of them said, well, instead of investing energies and in seeing who could work the hardest, most people invested most of their energies in criticizing others for not working hard enough. You just see from these letters a picture of people, A, not wanting to do a lot of work, and B, blaming each other and, and wrangling. But to me, the most interesting thing was what Marx and Engels did following that, right. which I think was one of the great con jobs, intellectual con jobs of all history. They were well aware of these experiences because Engels himself was in London and participated in the Owen Circle, went to their meetings, uh, wrote about it, and they mentioned these experiments and said, they don't count. They don't count because they are utopian. That's why even to this day, these people are often called the utopian socialists. It's utopian to try to create socialism by acts of human will. Socialism, rather, will come about by the turning of the wheel of history, regardless of what anybody wants. And that, they said, was scientific socialism. So uh, Engels wrote this pamphlet that was socialism, utopian and scientific. Utopian was bad, scientific was good. But the reason I say it was a great con is that what is science? The, the, the heart of science, the soul of science is experimentation. These people had this idea of socialism, the Owen and, and the others, and so they experimented. They created these living experiments in socialism. They all failed. And then Marx and Engels come along, and all they were offering was sheer prophecy. They claimed they could see the future. Laws of history told them that the future was socialist. And so they dismiss experimentation. They replace it with prophecy, and they say, this is science. Right. They're not learning anything from the experiments, and they're going on to create this deterministic theory of history, right. uh, a different kind of arc of history bending towards something. And... Uh, and also making it, a, a, as they saw it, a, a class struggle, right? I mean, that was a very important part. It was a morality play as well, knowing that there are good guys and there are bad guys. So the aristocracy, the bourgeoisie, a little later in the Soviet Union, the kulaki, which, which was a remarkable concept, the rich peasants who would be destroyed, uh, forced into famine, killed off. I'm getting ahead of myself. That was their conception, this idea of one class versus every other, one class that must dominate in the world supreme. That's ex exactly right, Cliff. Now, they might have said, well, they weren't saying who was good and bad, but they're saying who embodied within themselves the glorious future and who were holding it back because they embodied within themselves the retrograde past. Uh, sometimes you, you talk to Marxists, I would say, you know, we're not making uh, moral judgments of individuals, but rather of their role in history as, as a class. But it seems to me one of the reasons why this turned so horrible later was that this really is largely a departure from other political 
philosophy before then, this idea that there's some people who are either the good guys or embody the, the good developments and others who are bad or embody the bad, and that for the sake of the world, there has to be a grand struggle in which the one group vanquishes the other group. It, it's an idea that's fertile soil for some very violent and terrible things to happen. Right. And before, well, let's go on, I guess, to Lenin's contribution, to use the word loosely, towards this developing theory, uh, what he added to Marxism. The proletariat, the workers were kind of deus ex machina. They, they were, just because of objective conditions, they were going to make the glorious revolution that would make the world fresh and new. But by 50 years later, socialism reached a kind of uh, fork in the road. This was expressed by Eduard Bernstein, who was the number one designated intellectual heir to Marx and Engels. But he was a very uh, empirical and honest thinker. And he said, wait, we've got a problem. It's not happening. The revolution, the socialist revolution isn't happening even though it was supposed to. And he said, the reason it's not happening is because the workers aren't getting poorer and more miserable as the model had it. In fact, they're getting gradually better off. He may have been more sensitive to that than other socialists because unlike Marx and Engels and unlike most other socialist leaders, he was actually from a working class family. Mm -hmm. And so he probably could observe it firsthand um, uh, with his parents and siblings <laughs> that their lives were getting easier. So he said, and, and the result was, said Bernstein, he really abandoned socialism. And he said, for me, the final goal is nothing, meaning the final goal of socialism is nothing. The movement is everything. So what he meant was the movement being to better the lives of workers. So the workers were supposed to bring the revolution, but they weren't doing it. And so then if you were a socialist, you kind of had a choice. You could stick with the workers or you could stick with the revolution. And Bernstein said, the movement is everything, meaning I'll stick, I'll, I'll find, I'll support legislation to you know, shorten work hours, improve pay, what have you. Lenin was infuriated. Uh, Lenin was a young socialist. He was then in Siberian exile. He had heard about Bernstein's heresy. He made the opposite choice, which was, forget the workers, we must have the revolution. And since the workers, he said he agreed with the premise, the workers were not making the revolution, but therefore... Someone else had to do it. Right, so the workers disappointed him. The proletariat was not living up to what Marx said they were going to do. So you needed something else. You needed revolutionaries. You needed a vanguard. You needed those who understood the interests of the proletariat better than the workers themselves did. And guess who that was? Of course, that would be that would be Lenin to begin with. He understood what the workers needed, and he was going to make sure they got it. That's vanguardism or the vanguard political theory, right? Right. He said, we need a military-type organization of professional revolutionaries, most of whom won't be proletarians, but somehow this organization would embody the proletariat. My background is not as fully socialist as yours, but I was certainly sympathetic, I would say, as a young person until I went to the Soviet Union as an exchange student, learned enough Russian to understand what was going on and realized what it, that, what it, that, that's the Soviet Union did not provide prosperity and did not provide freedom and and met people who had been sent to labor camps not for what they had done but for who they were their what class they represented um, I mean just very briefly this one you know one 
old woman, really changed my thinking, told me she'd been in a labor camp for 10 years. I said, why? She said, I was there for 10 years. I said, but what did they sentence you for? She said, for 10 years, they didn't bother to come up with a sentence. They just sent you. Now, my daughter, who they executed, she had committed a crime. I said, what was her crime? They, they said, her crime was she formed a Marxist-Leninist study group. I didn't understand. I said, how can that be a crime in the Soviet Union? She said, my dear, it wasn't a Marxist-Leninist-Stalinist study group. She was executed for that. So that, I mean, I, I, mean, I had an epiphany at that point about what the society really was like. Okay, so so I would say Marx laid the groundwork, Lenin planted seeds, and of course Stalin took it the next step, right? He did, but Lenin himself killed thousands, and Stalin made it millions, but uh, I think it's very likely that Lenin would have, uh, had he lasted, made it millions. Uh, he was very, very uh, ruthless. But his success in seizing power in 1917 really put socialism on the map. It, it changed the game. First of all, there were communist parties created virtually in every country in the world. But the, the curious thing was that others followed in different ways or were inspired. That is, the communist parties mostly were created by people breaking out of the existing socialist parties. There were others who didn't break out of the existing socialist parties. They were skeptical of what Lenin was doing in Russia, was being too dictatorial. And those were the democratic socialists. You might think that party, those parties were weakened because they lost a good part of their membership to the new formed communist parties, but they were really quickly very much strengthened because they, and energized because Lenin's seizure of power, even to the socialists who didn't like how Lenin was doing it, seemed to confirm Marx's prophecy. There was a teleology. History was going in a certain direction. It was fated to go from capitalism to socialism. Or, or even for those who said, I'm not sure it works, but that is... But that is the future. That is the future. It still could be. And, and, <laughs> and, and they often said to the world, said, look, socialism is coming. You've got a choice between the nasty kind of socialism of Lenin or the benign kind of socialism that we nice people are, are offering. And that was what they thought, and it, and it very much strengthened those, those parties. A couple of questions we'll go through fast, but I think we need to get on the table if there's so much we want to talk to you about. At this point, if you had to say the, what constitutes socialism, what are the major ideas that you must have for there to be socialism? collective ownership or social ownership and democratic control of the means of production and distribution. You do away with private property. Everything is somehow owned collectively, either by the state or socialists would tell you, well, we could have lots of different cooperatives. Generally, socialists haven't insisted that it be state ownership, as long as it's not private ownership. It's got to be somehow collective ownership. For those of us who are not communists, we also insisted that this control of this collectivized economy be democratic. I guess the communists claimed they were democratic too, but they did it with, without, without elections or, yeah. or, or debate. With elections, but guided elections, right? <laughs> yeah, you only, only the common, you have elections in a lot of countries that are communist, but you may only have one choice or one party to, right, to, to choose from. So you have cooperative or collective uh, ownership of the means of production is what you should have. Um, in, if, if you believe, as I do, there's a tension between freedom 
and equality, the more freedom, the less equality, the more equality, the less freedom, you err on the side of equality over freedom. You, you, you constrict that. That's probably true. Very brief dig digression for you. Mussolini at least started as a socialist, and maybe you'll say he ended up as a socialist, that fascism is a form of socialism. Maybe you'll say it's not. That's not the case. After Lenin took power, he, he created a worldwide communist movement. He energized, he inspired the creation of fascism. Uh, Mussolini and Hitler both studied him carefully. He had created a, a model of, of seizing power and of totalitarian state that really inspired them. Mussolini was raised a socialist. He then became one of the top leaders of the Socialist Party of Italy. He had a uh, an important insight after 1914 when, when the World War broke out, which was that Marx was wrong when he said the working man has no country. That was the Marxist formula. That class was all important and nationality was not important. Mussolini did not break with socialism, but he said we have to add nationality. Nationality is as important as class. And then he took it further, still speaking as a Marxist, he said in defending or advancing Italian nationalism, Italy is a poor country compared to the countries of Northern Europe, if you look at the relations among countries, Italy is the proletariat of nations. And therefore, Italy needs to overthrow the hegemony of Northern Europe in order to achieve a better world and a better life for Italians. So there was a, a direct line, it may be a, uh, a twisting and, 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 and curving line, but a direct line from, from Marx, Lenin uh, to Mussolini. Nazism, that's an acronym what we're talking about, is National Socialism, right? The National Socialist Workers' Party, am I? That's correct, but it wasn't just a, a coincidental term to illustrate how much Hitler mimicked Lenin. As soon as he took power, they declared May Day, the international working holiday, to be a national holiday of Nazi Germany. Mm. The Nazi party members addressed one another as comrade. Mm. Uh, they decided that they needed state planning of the economy. So to best Stalin, who had five-year plans, the Nazi government created four-year plans. And of course, Hitler invented the Volkswagen, which was the people's car. And that was it, with everything that that language evokes in our right. minds, that was intended. Right. They didn't need to nationalize all the industries because they were controlling all the industries. Hitler could tell any any leader of, a, of, of any business or industry what to do. But that was not that dissimilar from what was going on ex in the Soviet Union, except they did it more directly. But nonetheless, the, we, both were forms of socialism, but both were forms of statism, both were forms of vanguardism. Um, and the, the vanguard representing the interests of the people. That's all fair, no? It is. The, the key thing was to take that, we, we were referring a few minutes ago to the sense that Marx brought to political philosophy that there must be conflict and there's an advanced class that must vanquish the retrograde class. And so Mussolini, uh, then Hitler, and, and also, by the way, I think our uh, identity politics people today, in a similar sense, substitute race, nationality, uh, ethnicity. Uh, or sexual orientation instead of class. Well, what you have is you have the classes that are oppressor classes. It's not right. the aristocracy right. and the bourgeoisie. It's the 1%. It's the those with white privilege. 
and you have, and you have the victim classes, the oppressed classes, and instead of being the proletariat, again, it's those who are people of color, people with uh, with gender diversity, I don't know, whatever terms you want to use. It, that's why people are saying this is social Marxism. It's just a, diff a slightly different variation on the same theme. I, I think it is. And the key part is to get away from what Plato and Aristotle did or what the utopian socialists like Robert Owen did is to say, let's try to think of what would be the best form of society. How should we organize society? That, it seems to me, is a very beautiful question. All of these, starting with Marx and going through all these different varieties we've talked about, they don't really ask that question. They, they say, as Isaiah Berlin put it, the human race is divided into uh, sheep and goats and the goats are malign and what we need to achieve is the defeat of the goats by the sheep and that will somehow automatically bring about a much better society. It's a very different approach to, to political thought. Uh, I went to and lived in Africa as a journalist for a number of years. Almost every country I went to was taking the socialist path to development. The problem being that there was no socialist path to development. These countries either stagnated or became poorer than they had been under colonialism. You had socialism uh, in Latin America, the Venezuelan model we're looking at right now, um, and it's pretty horrendous. It, uh, there's a country rich with oil when people are going hungry, literally. You had Peronism, which I, I guess I would also say is a form of, uh, of, of socialism. You'd agree with that, wouldn't you? Certainly heading in, in that direction. It was a kind of populism. Uh, well, socialism, right? Because <coughs> right. the Peron was going to, and Peronis will provide many benefits uh, for, the, for the people. Uh, whether or not they can afford those benefits, I would say that that's a big part of the of the problem there. Well, and look, let's let, let's move it up to where we are today. Jeremy Corbyn is very much an old-fashioned socialist. I'm not sure how democratic a socialist he is. You might want to just do a minute on who he is and and what he believes. But he is very radical. Um, and after you talk about Corbyn, I want you to talk a little bit about Bernie Sanders and his version of socialism to the extent that he has revealed it to us. He spoke a little bit earlier about different kinds of socialism, about those who embraced Lenin's version, which was purely uh, dictatorial and totalitarian, and others who still hoped for a democratic path to socialism. Corbyn is firmly in the first camp, not in the second he was not a member of the Communist Party of Britain, but he was and may still be a columnist for its newspaper. The change, I think, was in the 70s. It continued to be financed by Moscow. If he's no longer a, a columnist for it, he still, until very recently, has been a contributor to it. And he surrounded himself with people, I mean, his top advisors, really unreconstructed Stalinists. There was a split among the communists of Britain over Euro-communism, which was a, a kind of more gentle... Uh, uh, like the France, for example. These, these, they, yeah, they actually competed in elections. They were, to a lot of people, they were considered fairly normal. Uh, well, yeah, even well, though they were communists. Right. Yeah. And, and, and uh, 
there was a split, so they ended up with two parties, one calling itself the Communist Party of Great Britain and the other calling itself the Communist Party of Britain. The, the one group were unreconstructed Stalinists who, who hated Euro-communism. In fact, I think they hated Khrushchev's speech, uh, the famous speech of 1956 in which he renounced Stalin. That was the group that Corbyn's inner circle belonged to. They had a publication, that group. I don't know if they belonged to, some did, but not, but they didn't all belong to this communist party, but they all were involved with its public, with its journal. And the funny thing is, they were labeled by the other, by the reform communists, tankies. Tankies meaning they supported the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 56 and Prague in, in 68. The tanks were rolling in. They applauded that. So this was Corbyn's circle. Again, I'm not saying he belonged to the Communist Party. Reasonably sure he did not. But But this was his... His world. This is the the furthest left, the most uh, radical and socialist, and and however you want to uh, describe it, leader of the Labour Party in Britain since Attlee, or maybe forever. Much further further left. Much further left. He's the he's the most extreme ever, and uh, and he could be the next prime minister of Britain. That's a remarkable thing. He could be, and that could mean the end of NATO. It would certainly have to mean the end of U.S. British. Security cooperation. Right. You couldn't share intelligence, intelligence with, with a uh, government that he was ahead of. And in fact, he has written. He regards NATO as being the main threat to peace in the world. He he's described it as a Frankenstein monster. So it's it, it's hard to see how how that could go on if he was the prime minister. All right. So that brings us to Bernie Sanders, a presidential candidate, a leading presidential candidate, and the several new members of Congress, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Elon Omar, uh, Rashida Tlaib, and a few others, all of them avowedly socialist and, from what I can see, not kidding about it. They call themselves democratic socialists, but... I'm not sure that that's really an accurate label, or at least let me put it this way. I was for years a democratic socialist. I was a leader of a group called the Young People's Socialist League. By the way, I joined it the same year that Bernie Sanders joined the same group, but I, I didn't know him. I was a high school student in New York, and he was a college student in Chicago. But he, he left the group, I think wandering further left. I, I stayed on and, and eventually over after some years, became the leader of this group. We were democratic socialists. That is, we had this idea of a socialist economy, but democratic political system. But it also meant that we were uh, hostile to all regimes around the world that called themselves socialists that were dictatorships. And we we regularly denounced them and said, that's not the socialism we're uh, talking about. So we have now that you can see on, on YouTube uh, Bernie Sanders from the 80s, when he went on his honeymoon to the Soviet Union, and when he went to Nicaragua for the celebration of the sixth anniversary of the seizure power of Nicaragua by the Sandinista government. And you can see him just uh, uh, for half an hour regurgitating Sandinista propaganda about the fabulous things they had done and how they were giving power to the workers and the poor people and how they had eliminated illiteracy and on and on. Then you can also see him waxing on about all the great things that Castro's done in Cuba. And then about the Soviet Union in another press conference after his visit there, 
He talked about the great transportation system and also about how the government provided such great cultural opportunities for the people. Well, that was 30-odd years ago. But just yesterday, the New York Times interviewed him, and the Times reporter asked him, is there anything that you said in the 80s about Latin America or the Soviet Union that you would that you think differently today? And he said unequivocally, no. So in my book, I don't know exactly where to place him, but he was not a democratic socialist, at least not of the kind I was. He doesn't seem to make democracy a, a touchstone of what he believes. And you know, he's a guy who speaks in ferocious terms when he talks about the billionaires who have become an oligarchy and ruled America, and he's angry and animated. He has no such uh, hostility to the dictators who ruled and largely ruined these other countries. How far from Jeremy Corbyn is he? We know that Jeremy Corbyn likes Bernie Sanders. Do we know if that's reciprocated? Well, we know that Ocasio-Cortez lionizes Jeremy Corbyn because she said that she had had an hour-long phone conversation with him and how honored and excited she was to talk to this great man. Sanders, we don't know. I, I would differentiate in, in this sense. Corbyn really comes from a Stalinist milieu, using that term advisedly. Sanders is a very odd duck because his biographer tells us that his first attachment was to Bolshevism. But then, as I said, he joined the Young People's Socialist League, Democratic Socialist group. And then, again, according to his biographer, he was listed as a presidential elector for the Socialist Workers' Party and even sought their vice presidential nomination. The Socialist Workers' Party are hardline Trotskyite. Now, probably not many people uh, listening to us can, can keep these straight, but for someone who comes from a socialist milieu, the socialist, communist, Trotskyists, each one of those camps hated the other two. So for someone to have a history sort of marching through all three of them, I think must be unique. I've never heard of it before. So it makes it hard for me to parse what exactly is the, uh, uh, the, the ideological heart of Bernie Sanders. And I think I, I, think I read this in, in something you wrote, that even his biographer, who's a favorable biographer, who is, who is, who is somebody who wanted to shed good light on him, said he, his definition of socialism is slippery, I think I, is the word I think I saw. So we may not, we, we may not know exactly what form of socialism he embraces and, until, uh, until we elect him, to almost paraphrase Nancy Pelosi in a different, in different context. Um, he's not leader of the pack at this point, uh, but I think he's number two as we record this. Um, who knows? And we are getting a larger socialist of some sort, of some a socialist caucus, if you will, within, certainly within the House uh, at this point. So uh, last thing I want to say is socialism has been tried many places around the world, Africa, Middle East, uh, Latin America, which of course we didn't get to discuss China. For the most part, it's it has been a failure uh, almost everywhere. And yet, while it, it it might have been relegated to the past, uh, to the ash heap of history, to borrow a Trotsky phrase, it also may be the future because in Britain and the U.S. you have socialists capturing the imagination of a lot of a lot of people, not least the young people. 
idea was dead and buried. Uh, actually, the first edition of my book was, in a sense, a kind of epitaph for, for what I thought was a finished story. So I must confess, I'm pretty uh, astonished to uh, see it uh, rise again, how far it will go. It doesn't make sense to me that it will go very far, but, uh, but who knows and, and why? I also wish I could understand, uh, but the, the rising inequality that we have here in other countries, perhaps, uh, although the people that I can see who are attracted to socialism don't seem to be the same people who are on the short end of that, of that inequality. And one of the most unequal co countries in the world, of course. It's China. We have about 160 billionaires, and yeah, all right, yeah. I, I noticed that there've been a ton of op-eds of people trying to explain them, to to help them explain themselves, as if they're terribly inarticulate and saying, "Well, when they say socialist, they don't really mean it. What they mean is social democrat, just like in Scandinavia." And and uh, it is true that there's a different model in Scandinavia. The Scandinavians have much larger public sector and a much more generous welfare state than we have with all kinds of benefits. But what they don't have is social. And in fact, the, the Scandinavian model is to nurture capitalism, but to have high taxes and a big government. And the, the World Bank puts out an annual ease of doing business scale. Venezuela for years has been third from the bottom of 190 countries, but Denmark is third or fourth best, uh, Norway seventh, and Sweden twelfth. They, they nurture capitalism, but then they take a big cut for the public sector. These socialists we have, from, from Sanders to Ocasio-Cortez, are wildly hostile to capitalism. She said, capitalism is irredeemable close quote. Mm -hmm. And Sanders bangs on about billionaire oligarch. This is very far from the spirit of what social democrats have created in Scandinavia. Which is a, a, a welfare state where you mm -hmm. provide benefits based on capitalist productivity and prosperity, right? It's not quite socialism. It's mm -hmm. simply having the, the, the wealth within the society to provide social, social goods and do it Fair, to a fairly large percentage of the population. Oh, and I say that advisedly, too, because there's a small populations in these countries. It's not like you've got millions and millions of people living in, in, in poverty. It's, it's, you're, you're, you're doing it in places uh, that are very different from that. But that's what we're talking about, a distinction between a welfare state that, that's based on prosperous capitalism and a socialist state where the capitalists have to be strangled. Well, you got to kill the geese that are laying the golden eggs to make it real simple, yes? That, that's right. It's based, the, the Scandinavian welfare state is based on capitalist prosperity. It's also based on a kind of very homogeneous society where people, and small, as you say, where people seem not to mind paying very high taxes. Up to a point. Because Sweden, Ingar Bergman, I remember him leaving saying, I've, I've had it, I'm not going to work here anymore. Just well, so but, but, but by and large, by and it's much. part of their social political mentality that they, have, that, they have high, that they have high taxes. But you know, here in our country, uh, a deficit of about $1 trillion that I would say we could blame both parties for, I would blame the public for it. People want more from government and they want to pay less for it and we get this disparity in Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, last year, for example, 
their deficit was zero. They actually are running surpluses. So they do have all these government programs, but they seem not to mind paying for it. If people want to propose here that we follow the Scandinavian model, the the trick would be to raise all the taxes that or, or go to the federal government by about 50%. That is half again as much. Then we could, first of all, liquidate our trillion-dollar deficits that we're, we have in our budget. And then we could spend uh, on top of that with a balanced budget to provide whatever uh, welfare programs we wanted. But I haven't heard Sanders or Ocasio-Cortez or, or others saying, what we need is a 20% sales tax, which is what they have in Scandinavia, 20% on everything you buy over and above existing taxes to, to help fund the great programs we have in mind. And we need to increase income taxes and make all the people who are now not paying income tax because they're in the lower half start to pay. That's all what goes on in Scandinavia. I'm, I'm waiting for them to start propounding this. We may have a while to wait. I've got many other questions, but not time to do it. But um, we'll, there's more to come on this, and people who are interested should absolutely read Heaven on Earth, The Rise, Fall, and Afterlife of Socialism, uh, which, again, you wrote at a time when you thought it was an epitaph, but your epilogue uh, provided this year makes clear that's not the case. So thank you again, Joshua Mar Moravchik, uh, and thanks to all of you for being with us here today on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. If we could be doing better, tell us. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.